Hi, welcome to Literally, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Mock. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we're talking about adapting your literature class for the online classroom. Because of the COVID, you, like us, probably switched your face-to-face class to an online environment in a sort of rushed panic somewhere or sometime during mid-spring. And... That was damage control for most of us. And so what we're talking about this episode is the luxury of actually having time to plan a class as online. Whether that's because you know you're going to teach online or if you're thinking of contingency plans in case you do need to go online, you won't be in that damage control situation again, hopefully. Yeah, I think at this point we just see more and more frequently schools are offering online courses or that there's more reasons that we might have to adapt to the online forum. So I think what we're talking about today, while we're specifically talking about building a solely online class, everything is kind of adaptable for mixed modes or um, a traditional face-to-face course if you want to implement more digital techniques and and resources in your classroom but you know digital revolutions here so yeah we have to yeah it. i mean and most of these things uh that we're talking about today like twitter or wix we have used in face-to-face classes as well as in an online environment and so even if you're listening to this episode and you're like I'm not teaching online or I'm only going to teach online out of necessity. You can still probably definitely use some of these same platforms and techniques and ways to just spice up your class. I think one of the benefits of implementing digital resources in your traditional classroom or any class I found is that it gives students like a more immediate understanding of the practical uses of your class, which encourages them to engage and do the work um, and show up. And then they'll start to see the other uses of your materials. Um, But students are expecting everything they do outside once they graduate to be digital. So in some ways, like responding to those changing needs creates a better rapport in the classroom so you can tackle what maybe you're more interested in. Yeah, absolutely. And you can sell them on like, you know, you have to learn to build a website in this class and house your ideas about literature on that website. And so even if they're not that interested about their ideas for analyzing a text, you can usually interest them in this sort of technical side of it. And I think that in that process, they get more hyped up about... uh, sharing their their analysis and sort of critical takes on text yeah and it's like one of those fun side effects is that because students get so excited about building the website full disclosure they will hate it the first week they'll be mad about it but after the first week yeah but by week three you'll hear them whispering to each other like i actually really like building this website blah, blah blah and so they start to show each other and then you have them looking at each other's work and you've tricked them into being collaborative writers and scholars yeah so 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 basically we're, we're saying we just like trick our students all the time um yeah yep. that spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down <laughs> But so with all that, what what sort of things can you implement? Uh, Paige has talked about Twitter and Wix, and I don't know, maybe we can 
dive into that. Yeah. Um, for thinking about what are some ways we can structure an online literature class? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk. Let's start with Twitter at, because that's more of like a discuss, like weekly, daily discussion place, and then we can talk about Wix and the portfolio and whether or not you use blog posts or anything else you do with that Wix. But Twitter is fun because they are very bewildered by it like by its use in class like a lot of times the first couple tweets to each other are like this is so strange I've never done like Twitter I never thought I could do Twitter in class um but uh they tend to get out of those sort of stock answers I feel like like with so with discussion boards you get like kids that or students that say some reiteration of what they're the person before them has said and you can who's also the only person who's answered yeah and so and there and there are ways to around that in which you can hide the discussion post uh but then they're working in a vacuum still and they can't read what everybody else has said and so i like twitter because i think it has a little bit more it's more organic it tends to prompt real conversation and not just that sort of cookie cutter i'm supposed to post two questions and a comment and i use qqcs all the time so like i'm not knocking them but but uh, it gets us outside of that space where we feel like our students feel like okay i'm in a discussion board on canvas or blackboard and i have to be this certain version of myself and i still want them to be that professional like student oriented version of themselves on twitter but there's more room for it i can use hashtags i can use images i can use memes um i can have really it's not as performative. yeah yeah and so that's what that's what i tend to use twitter for um i use it for those discussions, I'll usually post a weekly thread that has a series of prompts in it, and then I'll also post on the lectures, like Easter eggs, where like you have to listen to the lecture or read the lecture in order to know what you're supposed to tweet. So it works in a way in place of quizzes, like reading quizzes for the lectures. So sometimes you can give reading quizzes where you test whether or not they actually read your lecture because online they they don't always read them or listen to them or whatever or watch them but when I put the easter eggs in on the like I'll do a powerpoint with a voiceover and in that voiceover I'll say so if you heard what I said today about such and such then you should tweet your response to this quote or this claim and then I know like okay well six of them did not listen or didn't listen closely and miss this. Um, as an aside, just because you brought up quizzes, I know that a lot of people hate quizzes, especially for literature courses, but I think for online you will find them more necessary than you would in a normal class. I think, Paige, what you just said is such a good way to get around that, but I have found it useful to use quizzes for on the assignments in that, like, when... I need them to have like read the assignment description and know what we're doing to quiz them on that. So that way I can catch the wild misunderstandings that sometimes arise from an assignment, especially when you have a more complicated assignment. So that way you don't have to dumb down your materials because you're worried about not being able to communicate them. Um, but you also aren't going to get, you know, half of the assignments responding to something terribly different yes. <laughs> but, but I like that idea of um, using like the specific quotes and things like that um, 
Something else I do with Twitter, which you mentioned hashtags, I'll use hashtags to assign the small groups. So each small group has a different hashtag that they're using for that assignment. So that way they can find each other's um, tweets so far, what's going on and respond to each other. And I'll require for like the small group that they have to tweet at least five times with their hashtag. Um, and it can be a thread. And so if they like tweet a thread that has three tweets, that does count as three individuals, things like that. But then they'll have to maybe do like 10 tweets overall for the week so that they might respond to another classmate's question and that counts or tweet about something they're struggling with in class and ask for help. Or they might tweet something like that they found exciting in the readings. And then sometimes I also allow them like just to tweet about campus news. Mm -hmm. So if like they're part of, I mean, if we're teaching during a pandemic, you're not gonna have those same sort of like campus performances, but in the past, like if they're part of a campus performance, they can share that. Or once um, the pandemic started happening, they were tweeting um, their questions about that. Like, well, what's going on with grading? Are we allowed back on campus? Which allowed me in some ways to be like, that's still a rumor. Don't take that as bad. <laughs> like do somewhat damage control. But um, it was nice because it allowed it still to have that classroom community feel of like when you're talking before class or. I allow like some of those casual exchanges as well. Like it's, again, it's not as performative performative as a discussion board and so it's a good space for building community. I think that we also might want to talk about how we lay out this assignment for students so in a way that deals with like what's acceptable to tweet and what's not acceptable to tweet Mm -hmm. or like what you won't get credit for because I do have students um very few but I have had a handful of students who don't read the Twitter assignment description and they tweet about like what they had for lunch or something and (laughs) then they don't get that week's participation credit and they're like well I did the 10 tweets and it's like yeah you did the 10 tweets about like your trip to the vet with your dog and you didn't actually Mm -hmm. tweet about anything that had to do with class and so there are moments where you have to like clarify that this isn't a free-for-all space that you know Mm-hmm. It's it it is it is sort of more casual. I don't know if casual is the word I want to use, but it's it's outside of your our official class website or Canvas site or Blackboard site, and so there's room for us to have a little bit more fun and be a little bit more true to ourselves. But that doesn't mean it's just a free for all. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. One of the things that I stress in my overall Twitter assignment is that one they have to have a separate Twitter for yes class. I do that too. so if yeah if they already have a Twitter they can't use it and you're gonna find that the majority of your students don't have a Twitter that they're not using it or you know have maybe used in the past but don't anymore but that's fine Twitter's pretty intuitive and user-friendly and they figure it out within the first week for the most part um, but then the second thing that I require off the bat is that make to make clear that our class Twitter has to follow our civility clause and have a clear civility clause in your syllabus about what sort of language is prohibited, what is just considered beyond the pale. Mine specifically says um, that I encourage you to express your ideas. You must always be respectful of your peers. 
Um, no disrespectful, profane, abusive, or hateful language will be tolerated. This language includes, but is not limited to, racist, sexist, homophobic, or other direct uh, inflammatory language. Should such language be used in your tweets, blogs, peer reviews, or other class conversations, you will not receive credit for the assignment and may face additional consequences. To be honest, I've never had a problem with a student doing anything hateful on Twitter. Most of them know that like the online space is a place where it can follow you and get you in trouble. They, especially for freshmen, they had that drilled in their heads about how they can get their college, you know, application rescinded or what have you. But I know a problem that some of the other instructors we worked with have faced is like students liking porn accounts on Twitter <laughs> and then those likes appearing in everyone's feed. And that's something has not happened in my class, but something that I would address in the future of maybe just making them aware that people see your yes. likes. Uh, so I also have not had that problem, but I've heard the horror stories. Uh, and so I just let them know, like, hey, the what, however you react on Twitter or whatever interactions you have, those are visible to your followers. So... Whatever you're liking should have to do with the class. Whatever you're retweeting, anything you do on that Twitter should have should be rooted in what we're doing in class. Um, yeah, making it just clear that this is classroom discussion, I think solves a lot of things. And then if you are an active participant and they see you tweeting, you're being a model for what sort of things they can or can't tweet. And one, if you're an active presence, they don't want you to see certain things so they just won't cross certain lines um but there's also really fun things like you'll have like plagiarism twitter accounts like try to solicit your students into buying essays from them and (laughs) your students will get very uncomfortable i love it though because then i get to come in and and you know tell that robot account or whatever it is that our class knows what plagiarism is and how it works and we're not interested and do some sort of gif and the students will then when it happens again they delight in doing that sort of performance of plagiarism i never (laughs) (laughs) yes i have very similar experiences and it is it is fun um yeah so what's been your favorite like assignment or use of twitter um that maybe we haven't talked about yet um, so this is just sort of a nice thing at the end of the semester. Um, I will have students give them the optional assignment, so it's not a small group assignment, of praising anyone whose work has standed, stood out to them throughout the semester. And I tell them, make sure you tag that person. Like, if you're going to compliment them, they should see it. <laughs> so, and so you get to see them just praise each other's work but it also shows you what they understood the class to be about where they're like you did a really good job at insert assignment because blank skills um so it also is a reflection um but it solidifies that community and it it kind of i think gives them this unspoken permission that they can keep working together once the semester ends, even though they haven't necessarily met in person of, oh, right, like I can, even though we worked on that thing a a month ago, I can still talk to you about it now and maybe we can do something in the future. Um, In a more practical setting, um, 
that's a really awesome assignment though like I'm just thinking like, that's giving me like the warm warm fuzzies I like it a lot it's a nice way to end absolutely the um and it's something that they wouldn't do in person you know like if you had everyone in the classroom face to face and it was like who would you like to compliment it would be so uncomfortable yeah, I think for definitely but the screen protects them from from that sort of feeling overly sentimental um but something that's worked for me really well was um, we did some work with thinking about accessibility of communications. And so they worked with the, um, they looked at the American Disabilities Act and then they looked at some other texts. And in their small groups, they considered like other texts that they've seen that attempt to be more accessible and why they succeed or fail. And it's that one is not necessarily successful because we're on Twitter, but because they're doing all of this via text for the most part, they're already thinking about how the way they're communicating with each other is different than would it be in person. And then they're thinking about all the ways these sorts of communications, like each one has its own set of affordances and limitations. And how does it welcome or exclude different communities that they're just coming at it from a different approach and you see them like thinking about past communication through different lenses where they're like I never thought about this or um didn't realize that this would be so hard so you see them like rethinking like hashtags that if you have to capitalize like the first letter of each word in a hashtag for it to be read properly to visually impaired people who are online and things like that what about you? What what's because I know you you've used Twitter differently than I have. Well, mine is definitely not as impactful, I think. Uh, but I, an assignment that I really like across the board for any class that I've used it and used Twitter in is that I asked them on the first day or during that first week to tweet a meme that describes their relationship to writing literature, English classes, their past experiences, and then I ask that they explain it to us, right? Like, not in detail, like, I don't need any horror stories of, like, the last English class you took, cause, uh, but that it becomes, some of them are really, like, really apparent, you know, like, they'll have, like, that Dory meme that's, like, just keep writing or whatever, but some of them aren't as apparent, and, and I like to know, and then what I have them do at the end of the semester is think about how their ideas about the class and how it's relevant to them has changed and what their new meme might be. And so the hope is that they all have a more sort of positive or beneficial outlook on the the content and what we covered and that they don't just you know reuse the same meme but they can they can (laughs) right and so if they do and I've only had like three students do this but if they do they then it gives me the chance to talk with them about like well what walls are you still hitting Mm -hmm. and we usually do that in a sort of like public way and like I let them know beforehand like you know I'm gonna ask you questions about your meme and what it means and how and specifically how you think that relationship to to these ideas changed or didn't change and what kind of work needs to be done in the future and so it's a really positive reflection activity yeah I like that that it's both an icebreaker and wrap up that's a nice full circle and then you said something about you know talking publicly 
And that's something else that's really nice about Twitter that you can use to your advantage is like, whereas in face-to-face -face classes, I think everyone has it where students wait until after class to all line up and ask you those questions. I, I encourage them to ask them on Twitter rather than email me. Yeah. And then you can retweet that question with the answer. So everyone has that information. And I tell them off the bat, like, if you have a question, I guarantee at least three other people have the same question. And it just allows you to share information a bit more easily and not have those like 20, 20 individual emails. Yeah. And, and I think yeah. it also does something to create community, right? Community where you can ask mm -hmm. questions um, and you can not know the answer uh, and seek help. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes what I notice with that is a student will tweet a question and before I get to it, because um, I try to, this is also helpful, I try to only monitor that Twitter between certain hours of the day and I let them know, like, I'm only active on Twitter between four and six or something, because it can be one of those things that will take over your life if you don't turn it off. Um, yeah. And so... <laughs> I will only have it up on my computer. Never put it on yeah, your Yeah, because you'll just constantly respond to students. Um, the, the lure mm -hmm. is there. You're like, no, they need to know this right now, but they don't. They can wait. You can wait. It's really you. You're the problem. Mm -hmm. But but, oh, I've lost track of what I was saying. Oh, nope, still gone. No, I think I think I knew where you were going. That, that other students will answer yes, the question. Yes, yes, right. So other students will jump in and they'll say, "Oh, you can find that in the syllabus or whatever." And then I just have to retweet like that little thread, and it's like great um, because they do. They're willing to help each other out. Um, and then yeah. when they're bigger questions or they're bigger discussions, they've already like talk to that person in the virtual world and so they're much more comfortable with doing it yeah they they're they see their classmates much more as resources than they do in a face-to-face -face class yeah because they can't just wait for you after class and the other thing that will come up is like if they don't know the answer you'll have students say i have the same question me me too mm -hmm. me three which also then lets you know immediately oh that's not something i explained fully right. or that's something i need to tweak so rather than like at the end of the semester when maybe you have frustrated students saying we never did this blah 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 you're getting that feedback live and so you can address the problem so there's not that buildup of resentment but you also know what to fix. yeah I love that aspect oh. of using Twitter because mm -hmm. it really does show like when I have like five students across the board that aren't understanding a particular blog assignment or whatever it might be then it, it really does give me the chance to publicly say like I didn't communicate this well with you guys. Let me let me give you some more information, and they appreciate that. So we've talked a lot. About I know Twitter. this episode's going to just be about Twitter. <laughs> oh, let's switch. We want to talk about so structuring an online class in general. Like if you're building it from the start, I think you'll have one issue you first have to grapple with is what does your department or university require. I think increasingly we're seeing departments require that their instructors use the university platform whether it's like blackboard canvas whatever but if you if you have to use that you have to use that and hopefully your school will have resources that will help you build um, and see models but if you have leeway you might think about other platforms like wix or weebly and that give you a little bit more agency over how it is 
built. And also, like, um, Google Docs. So, I know, Paige, I've never used Weebly. I've used Wix. Uh, and I really like it, which is why I haven't used anything else. I don't know about you, though. Have you used I Weebly? used Weebly a long, long, dark time ago. Uh, <laughs> and I 1010 do not recommend it. Um, okay. Don't. So these are the do's and yes. don'ts. <laughs> um, it just was not a very user-friendly platform, and it crashed a lot. And I think this, again, this was like five years ago, and so maybe it's wonderful now. But I do also really like Wix. Yeah, I think uh, I strongly recommend writing a guide for your students once you have it figured out, like, um, don't let them use ADI because the ADI will want to solve everything for them. And if they make some sort of mistake, they don't like something, well, they mess it up, they can't Margaret, correct will it. Margaret, really. before you go into like the, the do's and don'ts of Wix, will you tell us like exactly how you use it in terms of like how you use it as a platform and an assignment for them? Yeah. Um, so I have used Wix both in my composition classes and literature classes where they use it as a portfolio, but it's something that we start building from the very beginning of the semester. So the first week of class, um, day one or day two, depending on how long the face-to-face classes are, we go over it in class. Like, this is how you sign in. This is how you make an account. These are some of the options they're going to give to you. I'm going to pick this random one and walk through it. and the they have to send me their link to their own platform that first week and i link every student's portfolio on a student page on my own wix class or wix site and that wix site mine is our class hub for the semester so it's where i put like supplementary readings it's where i put lectures assignments the syllabus everything and um, so we have our student page where everything's linked. And, and if we're using like a face-to-face class, it's still like where they will go to each other's sites to do each other's peer edits and things like that. I Sorry, I cut you no, off. No, you're fine. I just have another question. So what do you think the perks are or why do you choose to use Wix over a platform like Canvas or Blackboard? So I think a few things. One... The selfish purpose is that it lets me keep my materials after I have left a university or if the university changes platforms. So while you and I were in grad school, we switched platforms and we got all those emails constantly of like, you need to remove your stuff now, you won't have access to it, blah, blah, blah. And it just made me think like, okay, I can save my readings, but I'm gonna would have to copy and paste individual like discussion board posts, things like that. Like you can only save so much from, from a platform. And I think that happened our first year. So I didn't really have that much, but it made me realize that I had no control over that platform. And therefore I did not have independent access to my materials. And so I wanted to make sure I could keep my stuff. <laughs> and by building my own platform, I got yeah, to. That's a totally valid reason. Um, yeah. And in terms of my students, the reason I like it is, again, it gives them that immediate use where I explained to them from the get-go that when they go and apply for internships, their first jobs, and someone asks to see like a portfolio of their work, they have one. And they have one that will look polished. Um, They can edit. I tell them, you can do whatever you want with this site after you get your grade from me. 
Like, I need you to keep it as is until I submit grades. But after that, that's all yours. So that way you can tailor it for any, whatever personal or professional goals that you have. And most of my students talk about, maybe they're not going to use the site we built for my cl- for our class together, but they do plan on building other portfolios for, for their own purposes. Um, and it also allows them to invest in the work we're doing more immediately because there is some sort of like public component um, in terms of like collaborating together, sharing, all of that. Other um, people being able to so, access their work. So not just peers. But yeah. I, I tell my students, I'm like, you're doing such good work. Like, and now you have this portfolio with all the essays you've written and, you know, visual components or whatever. And you can like share this with mm-hmm. your parents. They'll be super jazzed yeah. to see this. And you should be super like excited to show them. So they get this sense of like pride in their work. It's not just an essay that goes to die in the waste bin at the end of the semester. Exactly. It, it gives it life outside the classroom. So it's not just what we're doing exists in this vacuum. Um, so what made you decide to start using Wix? Because we came to this conclusion separately. <laughs> well, so I started using Wix because I really wanted to use portfolios across the board or semester long projects and so I am really interested in projects that are like large projects in which you have several stepping stones for or building blocks for in throughout the entire semester and so especially in a research writing class or a literature class where we talk about how research is never just something you do over a two-week period. I think there's more cohesiveness with Wix um, in terms of building a portfolio there and more cohesiveness than just like they can see that cohesiveness. Whereas if I just use Canvas and I have blog posts and assignments and so on and so forth, discussion boards can be really hard for them to see how each of these things build on each other. But when I ask them to build a Wix portfolio in which, um, so I've done it group projects in a literature class with Wix as well as like individual portfolios at the end of the semester and so with the individual portfolios they were examining a single or I think they could pick between like one to three themes that they were examining over the course of three different texts Um, and so again they worked on it throughout the semester they had to have a certain number of blog posts they had to have a certain number of annotated peer-reviewed sources they had to have uh and then like a final project uploaded there with the group projects i had students each take a particular text um a novel and then come at it from a different angle and put that in a online space in that wix portfolio and so that was less, like, that assignment was less of a whole semester assignment and much more of, like, a group couple-week assignment, couple-of-weeks assignment, mm-hmm. but um, I I like that Wix gives us the opportunity to work collaboratively and also to be able to really see that work in a polished space and in a space that's not just, like... A reflection of class right so like blackboard and canvas mm. like those are wonderful tools but they're definitely the student in that on that platform whereas wix they're yeah. the creator in that in that situation and they get to make all these executive decisions and think about why they're making those decisions and how that translates to a larger audience whether that's their peers or whoever else they might share their work with i really like thinking about that that switch from like student to creator and how 
that sense of pride is really going to change the way they invest in the work. I haven't thought about that component, but I, I think it's really true. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot now and ask. So you talked about like some really cool projects that you've done with Wix. What has been your favorite thing you've done with Wix that you think I wouldn't have been able to do this in a traditional setting? Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, so in a traditional setting in a face-to-face class? Yeah, like if... Or, like, if you weren't using digital... Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I think I have... I really enjoyed the group assignment where students uh, created a website uh, that looked at a specific angle for the text that they were reading. So, for example, we did Jasmine Ward Salvage the Bones, and each group... So, each website was about Salvage the Bones, but it had to be from a distinctly different angle. So, one was about reproductive health in um, African-American girls. The other was about dog fighting um, and stigmas of dog fighting, uh, and there were like four or five. So uh, obviously there was one about hurricanes. Um, then there was also someone, a group that looked at junkyards and junkyards in the South and from like an ecological perspective. And so what they did is they each had to, they put together a sort of home page that said like, why do we even care about this topic? Right. So, um, and part of that was like establishing how they see it, that particular topic in the text. And then they had to put annotations for like three different articles peer reviewed. Um, and they had some guidelines for that. And then they had to each upload a response paper. Um, and so, and then there were, the requirements for that included that, like, you just couldn't copy and paste your document on to the Wix page. You had to do something with it. So it's, it needed to be a clear, like, sort of essay structure, um, in terms of, like, the order of ideas. But, so some people presented it as, like, more of, like, a web like, and so it was really visual. I had a couple of students who read theirs aloud, like a TED Talk, and they were short. So I think they were like five to 700 words. And um, they were really excited about these projects. They were very proud of themselves. They, they chose their topics and they wanted to talk about them. I think that brings up a really important thing that instructors need to keep in mind too, that when you are making your online class, whether or not you're using Wix or Canvas or Blackboard or whatever, you can't just upload the materials you had for a face-to-face class and call it a day. You have to redesign your materials for digital space. So you have to think about how are your students engaging with them? How are they going to be accessing them? Um, and act accordingly. You might also think about like accessibility. So thinking about like black font on a white screen we don't really tend to look at that for that long um think about like people's problem with kindle initially yeah right? <laughs> like we were it was like oh this is jarring <laughs> um and think about like what sort of font you're using there's just a lot there um even things like having alt text if you're having images so that way visually impaired people still get those descriptions yeah it- 
Or... And if you're if you're using yeah. like a new version of PowerPoint, like if you use that as uh, for your some of your lectures, Microsoft has it where anytime you add a picture, it gives you the option. And if you don't change the alt text, then it gives a description of it. Sometimes those mm-hmm. are good descriptions, and sometimes they need to be changed. But um, yeah, and so you might also think about like subtitles if you are um, or scripts, right? If you're lecture is you talking and you've recorded it does that video have subtitles if it's a voiceover from a powerpoint do they have access to those scripts um and that can be a lot of work but it's it really is necessary um you can ask questions too in terms of like with students i've had students I give that first day survey and I say, is there anything that I need to know? So again, I'm not asking them to disclose anything. Um, but if they feel comfortable, I've had students say like, I'm colorblind. And so I, I need you not to use this color font or something like that. And that's really good to know off the bat. Yeah. And just thinking about that, with, with that in mind, with your design, and there's a lot of resources, and maybe we could link some on our website um, to to resources that help you think about visual design and what you can do as an instructor. Obviously, for, I know we didn't have any classes in grad school that taught us about accessibility and visual rhetoric. Um, so it's not something that's necessarily in our wheelhouse, but it's going to help your students. And also, it makes your stuff look better. Um, so... It's kind of a win-win, but... Yeah, and so some of that also speaks to, um, in being accessible, you're also thinking about multiple different modes um, and the ways in which people engage differently, right? And so the the, the kind of biggest fear, I think, with online is that there's going to be a lack of engagement. And so how do you recreate the engagement that you get in a classroom in this online setting? And that can be really difficult, but some of that can come from the ability or the willingness to use multiple different sort of avenues, right? So not always giving handouts, not always giving videos, but mixing it up with a variety of different um, kinds of text and materials. Yeah, so thinking about, like, we talked about Twitter as one way to have those, like, class discussions where they're engaging with, like, a text or with a lecture, but you could also think about having like a class discussion with something like Flipgrid, which Paige, you've used in the past. Um, so I kind of wanted to, I haven't used it, but from talking with you, it made me think about how maybe like you can do an initial Flipgrid where you read the passage you want your students to look at like as a group and then end with like a question that they then respond. So can you talk about a little bit about how Flipgrid Yeah, exactly yeah. Works? So Flipgrid is like a academic Instagram. Uh, but with videos, right? Or so maybe like an academic Snapchat is a better uh, version of it. And so I did use it for discussions. I used it on the fly in the spring, so it was damage control. I had these (laughs) wonderful classes. Like, I just had really good students last semester, and they were all really invested in each other and enjoyed each other's company, and we... And it was mutual, right? So when we all went online, I got like a lot of emails sort of of just like kids being sad that we weren't going to see each other. Um, And I started using Flipgrid as a way 
for that interaction with like an actual person. Um, I didn't want to incorporate Twitter in the middle of the semester, but I also didn't just want to use the discussion boards. I also felt like students were struggling um, emotionally during this time mm-hmm. and being able to like see each other and talk with each other via the internet um, in this really, really immediate way could help them like sort of process like the like everything just abruptly changing but it also sounds like long term that would be useful like not just in a pandemic but for more normal situations where like it allows you to like establish your persona Mm -hmm. as the instructor like your personality but also foster relationships between your students and each other and your students and yourself and create that community really really easily yeah and so some things I like about Flipgrid is you decide how long the videos are so as the moderator and and so you can put I would post a prompt like we might watch a TED talk or read something and then I would post a prompt about asking them questions and and it also had that face-to-face quality of like I could begin a video or a week's worth of videos with like a how's everything going? How are you guys? Tell me something interesting that's happened to you this week. And that would be a freebie, right? But then the next one would be, hey, we watched this TED Talk and here's some quotes that I found really interesting. Can you respond to them or can you give me some quotes that you found on your own? And then I would also prompt them uh, to so also respond to one of your classmates or two of your classmates or so on and so forth. Um, it was all, again, by the seat of my pants. And so like if I went and when I use it again, I would sit down and think about like, so for every post, how many do they respond to? So on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it went well. There's some things I encountered. Um, students are uncomfortable at times with their face being on the internet. Um, these are, it's not a public platform the way that Wix is. So no one can access it unless I give them access to it. So that's really good. I can reassure them with that. Um, mm-hmm. But I can. I also gave students that were uncomfortable the option of just like just record the blank wall and you talking, um, and most of them took that option. But I did have two students who did not want to do it at all, and I just let them email me their responses. Again, I think that that's something I would think about. Like, what what are the alternatives to this? Do I need to give an alternative? Um, but very clearly in this situation I did because none of my students signed up for an online class in the beginning. And so they weren't prepared yeah. for that kind of interaction. Um, and so I think those are things that you might want to think about as you're, before you start using it and how you'd navigate that. Like how what's a fair answer to that question of can I just email you my answer? Because I think that generally I want to say no because there is some value to that platform and I'm using it for a specific reason, but yeah, it's complicated, I think. Yeah, it is. And I think maybe there's like ways you can think about if you adapt it in other places, like what the benefits are, also like what you lose. Like I'm thinking, well, maybe there's something there like where you can do, again, like with Twitter, like where you post a video of yourself, but you you put it on Twitter and you ask your students to respond and they can either respond like with a video of themselves or in text, mm-hmm. but then you don't get to have the same sort of parameters. Like, I like that idea, like one Flipgrid is private. So it's like you're in the classroom walls, that like little sanctuary we can create, but also you can like set up for how long I didn't realize that you could do that. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, and they can do things like put emojis over their face. 
So, like, Flipgrid seems to be aware that, like, some students are not going to be comfortable being on camera. And also some instructors are going to be like, oh, cover the face. Like, you know. Um, (laughs) And so you can do things like that um, that make it fun and, you know, lighten the mood around it. So it's not so serious. We don't have to take ourselves so seriously in that space. Yeah. And the thing I wanted to bring up with all of these platforms is that your role is to model how these work for your students and so part of what I think has been successful in online platforms is doing that work of modeling so creating the Wix site so that then they can see what that looks like having an active Mm -hmm. presence on Twitter so that you can build community and they can also take cues from you uh same thing with Flipgrid having that active presence so that they can see like oh this is what I do so I never just like post a prompt and disappear I post a prompt and then when they start responding I do responses to them and you know it's it's not with Flipgrid you have to have a quiet space to do that, right? Unless you want to have like a kid screaming in the background, which probably happens for me on my end. But it's not a like it's not such a taxing sort of response. I find it less taxing than like responding to traditional discussion boards. I like that interaction with the students. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited about it. I'm excited to see them and hear their thoughts. Um and Again, I think I get less cookie-cutter versions of them in those spaces, like Twitter and Flipgrid. Yeah, I think, and I think the less cookie-cutter, that's really, I think, what's exciting about all this is that by exploring these new platforms and taking risks, you're going to model that for your students. So by giving them these non-cookie-cutter assignments, you're going to get non-cookie-cutter responses and you're going to see them think about ideas differently, invest in the work in new ways because it seems fresher, it seems more immediate. As like an aside, I did a digital annotations assignment with my students, which I think most of us can attest to the fact that students don't want to annotate for the most part. (laughs) My students did this so well. I was so excited where they had to take a passage um, from the Odyssey that we were working with And it was super short, um, the passage that they would select. They could pick whatever, but I think it was somewhere like 10 to 15 lines. And then they had to come up with four annotations. And they were doing it online, so they could play around with how they wanted it to appear. If they wanted it to be like in boxes next to the text, if they wanted it to be like footnotes and they could like play with anchors and things like that, if they wanted pop-ups or hyperlinks or whatever. Um, whatever they thought would be most useful. And they were annotating both like, where they had to like break down like what techniques were being used, but also they had to have two annotations that were about the content and like what it was referencing and all that. And it was such good work. I was so afraid to grade this assignment because I thought it was gonna be too complicated. I thought they were gonna give, you know, spark note summaries and they didn't. They went above and beyond because they were like, I don't know what to do. So I guess I have to try. (laughs) So things like that, like you can take risks with like the close reading assignments or the analysis papers, like like what you were saying, Paige, where like they have to adapt it for the new medium and it's going to make them think on their feet, I think. So they're not just regurgitating what they did in high school or previous classes. Yeah. Speaking of that, I I told you before, I'm planning to try out Padlet uh, for annotation and I'm going to create 
my own version of Padlet annotations so that they can use that as like a study resource, but then also to see what it looks like. So when I do that, we can add that to, to the resources page. That'll be exciting. Um, okay, so I guess we can start wrapping up today's episode. Um, and first, we just want to hear from you what questions you still have about online classes. This is just sort of, we've covered a lot, but we're also just dipping our toes in the mm-hmm. water. This is wild, wild west for everyone. So what questions do you still have? What's worked for you already? What concerns have come up? Problems? Issues? Yeah. I think also we might, since we are pretty tight on time right now, we might think about instead of share, I don't know, I'm doing this on the fly, so Margaret, you can override me. Mm-hmm. Instead of sharing our dream course right now, maybe we could ask, like, what is your dream online course? Yeah. So share like that, that with us and we can, I don't know, maybe we'll do a part two for this. Again, I'm mm-hmm. going rogue here, but we covered a lot more <laughs> than what we thought and it's a coup. Yeah, and so if we do a part two, then we would definitely want to share some of your dream online courses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you think you can teach online that you might not be able to pull off in a face-to-face Yeah, that's such a or... really interesting way to put it, right? So, like, uh, instead of thinking of online as, like, the strife of your life. Nice rhyme. Anyway, <laughs> instead... I hope you had the strife. I yeah, so um, what What are the perks of it? How do you make it work for you? What can you do to make it exciting? And also, what opportunities do you have that you wouldn't have in a face-to-face? I'm excited to hear from everyone because I think this is something that we're going to have to keep tackling. And the more resources we can all share, the better we'll all be. Yes. All right, Margaret. Bye. Bye.